This morning we'll be considering verses 20 through 38. So Luke 21, verses 20 through 38. We are finishing this, this narrative that we began last week, this narrative which traditionally has been referred to as the Olivet Discourse. We will be concluding that Jesus' comments on the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple, which happened in AD 70, and then his, his discussion on the end of the age, which is a reference to his second coming. So Luke chapter 21, verses 20 through 38. Please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy and inspired word to you this morning. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance, to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And there will be signs and sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and of the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud of power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, but stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, and at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. As I mentioned last week, 
in this section, Jesus has been with his disciples in the temple courts by day, and then they have been lodging on the Mount of Olives by night. As we saw last week in uh, the beginning of, of chapter 21, on one of these journeys from the Mount of Olives to the temple courts, the disciples commented to themselves regarding the beauty and grandeur of this temple. This temple which at the time of this narrative was being renovated by Herod the Great. And Jesus' response to the disciples' comments is to say that the days are coming when not one stone will be laid on top of another. This beautiful temple is soon to come tumbling down. Boys and girls like the game of Jenga, if you've ever played that game, you push out one too many bricks and everything comes tumbling down. That's what Jesus is saying. The temple and Jerusalem are going to be judged. Well, naturally then, the disciples ask, well, Jesus, when are these things going to take place? They're conflating in their mind the destruction of the temple and the end of history. They can't conceive of life going on if the Romans, God's enemies, destroy their most sacred house. When are these things going to take place? But they also, in verse 7, ask for a sign. What sign are you going to give us so that we can be prepared for these significant events of the future. And so last week we considered Jesus' uh, first response to the disciples. He first begins by giving them non-signs. He gives them instruction regarding things that they should not be trusting in as valid predictors of when Jesus is going to come. Don't listen to the false predictions of false teachers. Don't be surprised when you hear wars and rumors of wars and pestilence and famines and when you yourselves are persecuted. Don't be surprised. They're not, going, they're not going to predict for you the day and hour of my second coming. But now, in this passage, Jesus is giving the disciples signs. Signs. It's natural that the disciples are warning a sign, is it not? We constantly are trusting in signs in order to navigate our ordinary life. Think of language. Language is made up of words and characters. They're signs. Signs which signify a concept or a meaning. And we trust this relationship between these signs and that which they, that which they signify. We trust them enough to have meaningful conversations with other people. We trust road signs and traffic lights to be able to get us to our, our, our destination in a timely and, and safely manner. Signs are all over our life, and we naturally trust these signs to help us navigate through it. Well, it's not, it's important to know and recognize signs, but it's even more important to properly interpret these signs. We all may have been in conversations with someone where we're both using words, but we don't have the same definition of the words that are being used, and we're speaking past one another. We can't have meaningful discourse. 
Or imagine if you're driving and you think the red light means go. That's not going to end well. So it's important not only to recognize the signs, but to properly interpret the signs. And so Jesus here is not just giving his disciples signs, but he also tells them how to interpret these signs, how they are to live in light of these signs. So this morning we are going to consider the sign that Jesus gives his disciples for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, which happens in AD 70. We're going to consider the signs that Jesus gives his disciples for his second coming. We're also going to consider the signs that Jesus gives us in between these two events. And lastly, we'll consider how we are to interpret and live in light of these signs. We'll see that Jesus begins in verse 20 by speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jerusalem temple. He says in verse 20, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. What sign is Jesus giving his disciples for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? When you see armies surrounding the city, know that the desolation has come near. Furthermore, what response are the people to have when they witness the sign? He says, flee to the mountains. You don't want to be in Jerusalem when divine judgment comes upon you. Flee. Flee to the mountains. If you're not in Jerusalem, don't enter it. And then Jesus goes on to describe the misery and the horror that will accompany these days. In verses 23 and 24, he says, Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. When you look back at history, we know that this actually took place. Jesus' predict, Jesus's predictions and prophecies came to fulfillment. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus speaks about this destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple in AD 70. And he, he notes that around 1.1 million Jews perished during this siege. He also talks about how these, these Roman troops surrounded Jerusalem during Passover. And during Passover, thousands of Jewish pilgrims would journey to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. So Jerusalem, this time, was already packed, and they quickly ran out of resources, and we also know from history that they resorted to cannibals. It was a horrific, horrific moment in history. Jesus is interpreting this event as the final sanction of the Mosaic Covenant. The final sanction the final curse of the Mosaic Covenant. When you read the terms of the Mosaic Covenant in passages like Deuteronomy 28, one thing that God says is that if you transgress the terms of this covenant, a foreign nation will come and destroy you. We see that partially fulfilled in, in the exile, when the Babylonians and the Syrians come in and take Israel out of the promised land. But we also see fulfillment of of Jeremiah 28 here, 
when the temple is finally destroyed in AD 70. In Luke 21, uh, verse 24, Jesus continues and he says, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Jesus here is saying that when this happens, when Jerusalem is destroyed, when the temple comes tumbling down, that is the final end of the Mosaic Covenant. And now the age of the Gentiles is in full force. What, what is the age of the Gentiles? What's the age when the gospel is going to the nations, to the Gentiles? Until when? Until all the fullness of the elect are brought in. Romans 11 says until all Israel is saved, which may refer to when all spiritual Israel, Jew and Gentile alike, come into the kingdom and Christ will return. The sign, the sign for the destruction of Jerusalem and of the temple is when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies. Well, Jesus now transitions in verses 25 through 28, and he speaks of the second coming of Christ. And the reason why we know that he is transitioning from the destruction of Jerusalem to the second coming of Christ is that here in these verses, Jesus is speaking about something that's going to be universal. It's not local, it's universal. So beginning in verse 25, we read, And there will be signs, and sun, and moon, and stars. And on the earth, the stress of nations in perplexity, because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Notice the universal nature of these signs. Signs and sun and moon and stars. The, the power of the heavens will be shaken. There will be great distress. The roaring of the sea and the waves. These are things that are going to be universally manifest to every creature on this earth. It's not local. It's universal. Furthermore, Jesus is describing these signs as being so closely associated to the event of Jesus' second coming that they can almost be thought of as belonging to the event itself. Think, for instance, of a sports contest. Most sports contests have a final buzzer, and the buzzer is, in, in a sense, a sign, a sign indicating, signifying the end of, of regulation. But the sign is so closely associated with the thing signified that it doesn't really give you time to prepare, because when the buzzer goes off, it, it's over. In a similar way, these signs are so closely associated with the event itself that once, once we see these signs in the sun and the moon and the star and the power of the heavens shaken, Christ is going to descend in the clouds. There won't be time for, for preparation. Further, notice in this event what people do. So, on the one hand, we see those who are outside of Christ, those who don't have true faith, they are fainting with Fear. Fainting with fear. Why? Well, our holy judge is coming from the clouds, and these individuals have no righteousness to stand on. They're naked in their own righteousness and are utterly filled with shame and fear. Even for us, I think one of the most uh, shameful, fearful 
things we can conceive of is being naked in a public event on stage. And this is just an echo, a barrage of that when it's before the holy God, the holy judge of the universe. Painting, painting with fear. Why? Because they're naked. They have no righteousness to clothe their bodies. But notice this other group of people. This other group of people, those who have true faith, they are to straighten up, lift their chin, and await their redemption. Completely different reaction. Some will be fainting in fear, the other ones will be standing in complete confidence, awaiting their redemption. What's the difference? This other group of people have righteousness to stand upon. This other group of people are clothed, clothed not in their own works, but in the works of another. The righteousness of Jesus Christ. This honor declaration of pardon that Jesus' mission was to come and make the Father's people righteous. Righteous. Therefore, if you are trusting in Christ, you are righteous, and you can look forward to the second coming of Christ with an uplifted head. An uplifted head, confidently awaiting your redemption. In fact, this is what our Heidelberg Catechism says. When it asks, what do we believe when we confess in the Apostles' Creed that Christ will come to judge the living and the dead? It says that on all of our sorrows and persecutions, I, with uplifted head, look to the very one who offered himself for me to the judgment seat of God. The answer is being pulled directly from this passage. In all my sorrows and persecutions, up until this point, Jesus has been talking about all of the sorrows and persecutions the church is going to face in this age. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, pestilence, persecution, suffering. But yet, we can look forward to that day with an uplifted head because we have passed through judgment through faith in Christ. So again, when we compare these two events, one's local, the other one's universal. One, God's people are to flee to the mountains, get out. The other event, we are to stand confidently and lift our heads and await our redemption. So again, these are two events. Two events, destruction of the temple and Jesus' second coming. Well, now in verses 29 through 30, Jesus gives us a prayer. And he says, look at the big tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in, in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. Jesus is pointing to a reality that we all know intuitively. One way you can determine the seasons of the years by looking at the vegetation, the foliage. It says here that spring, summer, that's usually when things begin to blossom. So too, he says now in verse 31, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Now what are these things that Jesus is referring to? These things are, are essentially everything that he's been talking about apart from Christ's actual return. It's the destruction of the temple. It's the, the wars, the rumors of wars, the birth pains of creation that we experience uh, by virtue of living in a fallen world. It's the persecution, the sufferings that we endure in this, in this life. All these things are, yes, in one sense, non-signs that we considered last week, in that they don't give us uh, uh, concrete predictions 
about the day and the hour of Christ's return. But in another sense, there are signs that the kingdom of God is near. Meaning there are signs that we are living in the last hour, we're living in the last days, we're living at the end of the age. This was true for a Christian living in the second century. Uh, second century. This is true for us living in the 21st century. We don't know the day and the hour. Christ is going to come as a thief in the night. But we live in the last days. And scripture, the New Testament particularly, speaks repeatedly about how this, this time between the two advents is the last hour, the last day. What scripture means by this is that after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, AD 70, there's no further redemptive act of God that needs to happen to trigger the coming of Christ. After the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, AD 70, there's no further redemptive act of God that needs to happen to trigger the second coming. If you're an Old Testament saint, many things need to take place before Christ can return and issue in the new heavens and the new earth. First, Christ needs to come to this earth and live and die and rise and ascend and pour out his spirit and then bring the final sanction Mosaic Covenant and end the Mosaic Covenant. But we who live during this age, apart from the fullness of the elect being brought in, there's no event that we're looking to that's going to trigger the second coming. Christ could come at any hour, at any day. We live in the last days. And so in verse 32, Jesus continues and he says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. I briefly touched upon this last week. There's some debate over what we mean when we say this generation. This word can have two, has two primary meanings. It can refer to people born at a particular uh, time, era. Or it can refer to a particular race, class, or kind of people. And most commentators think that it's this latter use that's being used here, meaning Jesus is referring to a particular segment of this world. What part of this world is he referring to? Well, this unbelieving world. So he's saying that this unbelieving world will not pass away until all these things take place. Meaning Christ is delaying final judgment until his second coming. So last week, we considered connects us directly to God's covenant with Noah. So we live at the end of the age. We live in the last hour. And so then in verses 34 through 36, Jesus wraps up this extended section, this all the discourse, by telling us how we are to interpret these signs. What do we do with these signs? How do we interpret them? How do we live in light of them? And so in verses 34 through 36, Jesus addresses this question directly. And he says that there are basically two responses we can have to these signs. There's two responses that we can have in light of Jesus' second coming. We can either be metaphorically asleep or metaphorically awake. So in verse 34, Jesus describes those who are metaphorically asleep in this present age. He says, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and, and, uh, and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. So Jesus is saying that 
There are those who are those who are metaphorically asleep are those who either refuse to believe or forget that Christ is returning. They live as if this world is all there is. And some who are metaphorically asleep live for hedonistic pleasure. Dissipations, drinking parties, drunkenness, intoxication, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. If this is all there is, let's let's live it up. Other people who are metaphorically asleep, they are, 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 are weighed down with the cares of this life. So this group of people still think that this world is all there is, but for them, they believe that a full life or a, a well-lived life is a well-planned life. So these are the people who want to plan every moment of their day, one year out, five years out, ten years out, and live a very full life. So these two groups, they're united in the sense that they both believe that this world is all there is, but they have different definitions of, of the good life. And Jesus says, don't be weighed down by either of these options. Rather, you are to stay awake. Stay awake at all times. Now, boys and girls, does this mean that you never have to take a nap ever again? Well, I hope not. Because I kind of like naps. But no, he's saying this metaphorically. Metaphorically, we are to stay awake metaphorically. And how do we stay awake metaphorically? Well, keep reading. What's the very next word Jesus gives us? Praying. We stay awake by praying. What's the connection? Well, the very act of praying is a reminder to ourselves that this world is not all there is. It reminds us that we are pilgrims. It reminds us that there is a God who is bringing all history to a grand telos in which he will unite all things in heaven and on earth in his risen son. The very act of praying is like a slap in the face that wakes us up to the reality that we're a pilgrim people. In fact, this is especially the case if we pray according to the way that Jesus tells us to pray. Think of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. When will these things come to fulfillment? When will God's name be perfectly hallowed on this earth? The second coming of Christ. When will God's kingdom perfectly and fully come? But Jesus says the kingdom of God is drawing near. What? The consummation of the kingdom. God's kingdom will only fully come when Christ returns. When will God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven? second coming, when we, as fallen image bearers, will finally fulfill our office and calling as willingly and faithfully as the angels do in heaven. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're essentially praying for the return of Christ. We're praying and reminding ourselves that we're a pilgrim people. En route to the heavenly Jerusalem. And here in this passage, note specifically what we are to be praying for. He says that we are to pray that we might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. Like the reference here to the second coming. Escape God's judgment and stand before the Son of Man. This connects us directly to the Gospel pen. The only way we can stand with uplifted head on that last day is when we, by faith, are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and therefore this teaches us that our prayers are meant to be anchored anchored in, in the gospel, in praise for the gospel, in prayer that we might be assured more and more that the gospel is for me. 
Not for those out there, but for me. And pray that we respond appropriately in this age to this gracious gift and good news of the gospel message. So signs, they're important. But even more important is us being able to properly interpret and live in light of the signs that Jesus gives us. So here in this passage, Jesus is telling us, telling you that you are living in the last days. The kingdom of God is near. So stay away. Pray. Never forget your pilgrim identity. Father in heaven, we give thanks for your inspired word that we have the privilege of, of reading, of hearing, of learning about. We give thanks for your common grace that we can, we can read, that we can understand language so that we can come to some knowledge of, of who you are for 